You can turn to Jonah chapter 2. We are in week 4 of our series called The Hidden Prophets. We're just scratching the surface of exploring the minor prophets. And um, as you guys know, we began by doing a little bit of a historical survey of the Old Testament, looking at sort of the major milestones of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and then going from there into just a quick exploration of what prophecy is, who the prophets are, what the prophets did, and then last week we jumped into what is probably the first book chronologically in the timeline of the minor prophets, which is the book of Jonah. So we find ourselves this week in Jonah chapter 2, and if you missed any of those previous messages, I'd really encourage you to go back and check them out um, so that you can track with us as we move forward. But let's go ahead and read this. Uh, Most of the chapters here in Jonah are pretty short, so we're taking whole chapters at a time. Jonah 2, beginning in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy te- I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. So last week we began with a question. Have you ever known that God was clearly calling you to do something? Like it was irrefutable. You knew the Lord was putting something on your heart, laying something on you. He was calling you to do something and you didn't do it. Or you really didn't want to do it. Have you ever found yourself in that position before? That's where we began last week. And for this week, another question for us to consider. Have you ever told God something you didn't actually mean because you thought it might be what he wanted to hear. Devin's shaking his head, no, you've never done that, I know. Jonah chapter 2 has to be one of the most psychoanalyzed texts in all of Scripture, and Jonah himself, one of the more psychoanalyzed characters. We want to, I think, understand him, but we honestly don't have a whole lot to go on. I think we impose on Jonah a great deal of like internal motivations or convictions or impulses, that in some cases are not explicitly stated, but we do get some clues here about him. In fact, I think many of us may have a somewhat confused view regarding the story of Jonah. Um, For one, uh, even just this chapter shows us that there are, as we'll see, some strange comparisons that are brought out when we read Jonah. We see comparisons to Adam, We see comparisons to King David. We see comparisons ultimately to even Jesus. We'll talk about some of those things today. 
But this doesn't mean that we can't come away with some kind of understanding of what is happening here, what Jonah's all about, who he is, what's really going on inside of him. I think some of the confusion for us comes from the fact that Jonah's tale has to some extent been co-opted by modern Christian culture and has been relegated kind of to, to the category of like children's literature or a children's story for some reason. Um, and, and this is, I think, how the children's story version normally goes. Uh, the Lord calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. He refuses and instead, instead tries to run away from the Lord. But God sends punishment in the form of a giant fish or a whale who swallows Jonah. And in the belly of the whale, Jonah realizes his error and he repents. And then from there, he does exactly what the Lord wants and the city of Nineveh is saved, the end. But notice when you tell the story in that way, it's not only overly simplistic, it's not really faithful to the text. It, leave out, it, le it leaves out all of chapter 4 which is, I think, the most fascinating part of the book of Jonah and, and the chapter that really does explain a lot of this and bring some context to this book. But also, notice how when we tell the story in that way, notice how it frames God. It frames God as this supreme being who is simply going to punish or, in a sense, imprison people until they do what he wants them to do. But, but is that really what's happening here? Like, is Jonah... Just a rebellious guy who God says, I'm going to punish you now until you get on board with me, or I'm going to imprison you in this fish until you do what I'm telling you to do, or is there something else? So let's consider what we know thus far about Jonah. So last week we looked at 2 Kings chapter 14, which is really the only other place in the Old Testament where we see Jonah explicitly mentioned. And in 2 Kings 14, we learn that Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. He's living during the era of the divided kingdom. So Remember we said we can divide the era of the minor prophets into three different time periods. We have the era of the divided kingdom, where you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and the tribes of Israel have split. You have the period of the exile, which comes after this. Ultimately, the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed, and the people are scattered. And then the Babylonians come in and ransack Jerusalem, destroy it, and carry the people of Judah away into exile. And then we have the third period, which is the period of return, where slowly the people start coming back to the land. They start coming back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple. We pick up in that first section, the period of the divided kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II, which is around 200, 250 years into the divided kingdom. And, and so here's some of what that means for us. Some of what we mentioned, these, these, these two kingdoms have sort of split apart. The nation of Israel as it was once under David and under Solomon, which was this sort of golden age. That, that's long gone. But also, both kingdoms have struggled to worship the Lord. They've struggled to follow God. The northern kingdom of Israel especially has bought into paganism. And this began with the very first king, King Jeroboam I, um, which set up, who set up pagan altars throughout the land and didn't want people going down into Judah, into Jerusalem to worship at the Temple of Solomon. So, so here you've got all these other options for worship now, and things just sort of devolve from there. But also, we know from 2 Kings 14 that despite the fact that King Jeroboam didn't follow the Lord, he's called an evil king in 2 Kings, Jonah had actually prophesied blessing over him. 
by declaring that Jeroboam would essentially retake territory that had once belonged to Israel but had been lost. And this happens. Jeroboam is able to extend the borders of Israel back to what they once were during the time of David and Solomon. Now, now none of that maybe seems all that remarkable. I mean, Jonah was a prophet. One of the things we said about the prophets is that prophets can bring often a word of blessing, but maybe more often a word of warning or a word of curse. More than anything, prophets come declaring the word of the Lord. But, but what's interesting, though, is that there are several prophets in the Old Testament who prophesy concerning Jeroboam II, including guys like Amos and Obadiah. But Jonah's the only one who prophesies favorably concerning him. He's the only one who has, like, good news for Jeroboam, which at the very least should give us cause for speculation. Thus far, also in the book of Jonah, we have evidence that Jonah hears the voice of the Lord, but no evidence whatsoever that Jonah fears the Lord. In the scriptures, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is used to describe a state of awe-filled submission. It isn't simply a state of awe or wonder, and it isn't simply a state of terror or of being afraid of the Lord. It also contains this idea of submission to God. And Jesus is the perfect example of what the fear of the Lord actually looks like. A messianic prophecy in Isaiah 11 tells us that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jonah, however, only claims to fear the Lord. He doesn't demonstrate it. Jonah 1.9, he tells the pagan sailors he finds himself with that he fears the Lord. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land because these sailors are scared to death. This incredible storm has come upon them. They're being tossed all over the place. They can't row to shore and they draw lots and they go, who has brought this upon us? And the lot falls on Jonah and they go, who in the world are you? Like, where are you from? What are you doing here? What's happening? And, and that's how Jonah answered them. He goes, well, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. But there's no submission. Jonah's seemingly talking out of both sides of his mouth. You can't say you fear the Lord while running away from the Lord. As a side note, when Jonah says he fears the Lord, he uses the exact same form of the Hebrew word yare that is used in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam in the garden says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And while there's no explicit allusion to the garden here, isn't the exact same thing happening here with Jonah on some level? Adam and Eve know the Lord, they hear the Lord, and yet they refuse to submit to him. Also, the result is the same. Their lack of submission to God leads them to like physically try to flee or hide from the Lord. It leads them into this like foolish thinking that thinks they somehow could actually run away. They somehow could be hidden from his sight. That somehow he doesn't know that Adam's naked, right? Their lack of awe-filled submission to God ultimately leads 
to true fear in the way that we use that word. It leads to terror. So make no mistake, Jonah is no faithful servant of the Lord. Tim Mackey calls the story of Jonah a subversive story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. A subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. So we go from like the graphic novel-esque tone of chapter 1 it's, very, it's like this Indiana Jones type tone in verse 1 where it's like high action. Like, man, you, you don't get much backstory here. You like jump into the middle of it. God calls Jonah and, and Jonah's out. And then suddenly Jonah's at a port and then he's on this ship and suddenly he's in the middle of this storm. I mean, it's just one thing after the next. And then we get to chapter 2 and suddenly it's as if we find ourselves in the Psalms. We have a complete shift of genre here. Suddenly we're reading Hebrew poetry. And the question we want to ask is, what, like, what is happening here? Like, what's going on? The fish or the whale that everybody makes such a big deal about or seemingly fixates on is only mentioned really twice in this story. The fish swallows him, and then the fish spits him up. That's it. But, but then we have this chapter, and it's Jonah in the belly. And it's inevitable that we put ourselves in his shoes. What if this was me in the belly of a fish? What what must it smell like? What must it be like? What must he be thinking? Like we, we impose all of these things on him. What's going on in his heart? And gosh, there's so much going on in this prayer that, that is honestly questionable. First, first of all, this appears to be a prayer of thanksgiving. It's like a, it's like a, prayer of praise to God. It it even appears on the surface that Jonah is grateful to God. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol is is the place of the dead, the realm of the dead. And and in this metaphorical way, even though Jonah is not dead, he, he, he likens his state to being in this place of the dead, and God, I cried out to you. And then he says, and, and I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And, and, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So there's thanksgiving, there's praise. My life was headed in this direction, but God, you have done this for me. And, and so Jonah who only a short time before was basically suicidal, who tells these pagan sailors, just pick me up and throw me into the water because he would seemingly rather die than do what God has called him to do. He now seems grateful to not be dead. It's very strange. Theologian David Schrock pulls out a number of inconsistencies here when he points out that One, that Jonah never mentions sin or wrongdoing. Jonah never really at any point confesses anything. He doesn't say, God, I realize that you said this, but I did this. Or, or, God, I realize that my life has been on the wrong track. I realize I've done something stupid. I've tried to flee or run away from you as if I could ever do something like that. But he doesn't say anything like that. 
He gives thanksgiving to God, but he never actually confesses anything. Also, notice that Jonah, Jonah basically blames God. He, he says, you're the one driving me away from your face. As if God is to blame for Jonah's actions, not Jonah's disobedience. It's not God driving Jonah away, it's Jonah driving Jonah away. Like Jonah is the one who's not being obedient. He blames God for casting him into the deep, even though Jonah told the sailors to do that. God's not the one to blame here. God's not the reason you find yourself in this situation. You are. Also notice that Jonah uses the language of the Psalms. He uses all of this language that could be considered like Davidic language. He's alluding to the Psalms in many places. But, but hopefully he doesn't like see himself as a David figure, right? Hopefully he's not putting himself in David's shoes, crying out to the Lord as a man after God's own heart. The question is, has Jonah actually repented here or has Jonah simply relented? Have you ever found yourself in that position with God where you recognize there are things that he wants to do within you or maybe things he wants to change with you or sin that he wants you to turn over to him? But rather than truly repenting of those things, you, you sort of give him lip service, you tell him you want to, you tell him the things that you think maybe he wants to hear, even if that's not really what your heart desires or what you want or even what you're doing. And then there are two ways that you can kind of look at what happens after Jonah prays this prayer. One is that Jonah says the magic words of repentance and God unlocks the prison of the fish to let Jonah out. All right, Jonah, I see, I see you've had some kind of a change of heart here, so here you go. Or, as Tim Mackey puts it, that Jonah's words are such distasteful baloney that it causes the fish to comedically vomit up Jonah onto the shore. This idea that, like, get this guy out of me. Like, this is so detestful and, and, and ridiculous that bleh. And the rest of the book of Jonah, I think, stresses that this is perhaps the more true reading of what's going on here. Because there are no indications after this that anything has really changed for Jonah. He doesn't seem to have repented. He seems to have relented. In chapter 3, he will go to Nineveh. He will preach a half-hearted, eight-word message. And all of Nineveh will repent. Like, just, just like that. We were talking about this text earlier this morning uh, during our prayer time, and Miles was saying he read a book by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, a Jewish theologian, uh, a few years ago. And he was talking about how even to this day the Jews read the story of Jonah on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But they read it as a story of when repentance took hold immediately. But it's, it's not Jonah, it's the people of Nineveh. They're the ones who really repent in this story. They're the really, one, really the ones who turn to the Lord. I love that. 
Chapter 4 then is all about Jonah's anger at what God has done that he saved these people. So if you read chapter 2 as Jonah having some massive change of heart, the evidence simply is not there, I don't think. So, so with that in mind, two takeaways for us today. One is that God wants your heart, but God doesn't need your heart. God wants your heart, but he doesn't need your heart. Jonah, I think, is largely a story about God's sovereignty in the face of a man who's trying to assert his own sovereignty. God's power in the face of a man who's trying to assert his own power. And, and it, it is sort of a comedy of sorts. In the equation of, jo- of God and Jonah, only one of them is actually sovereign. And notice this, Jonah's hardships primarily come not from the fact that God has punished him so much as they come from Jonah's own poor decisions. He, he puts himself into these situations. Just like Adam and Eve, when you jettison a true fear of the Lord, like honest, awe-filled submission to God, then you are choosing the way of death over the way of life. That's why Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom. Like if you really want to be wise, if, if you want your life to flourish, then you don't choose your path, you choose God's path. That's where real wisdom is. The fear of the Lord, awe-filled submission to him. The path of the fool is submission to the flesh or submission to sin. And then secondly, you aren't fooling God. <laughs> like, like God is not caught off guard here. God is not surprised by what transpires. And at no point, especially in this prayer, at no point does God think, oh, oh, maybe, maybe he's starting to get it. God knows exactly what's going on here. While Jonah says with his mouth that he fears the Lord, it's in complete contrast to the fact that he's behaving in a manner that says he doesn't understand God at all. To think that you could physically run away from God or hide things from God is to say that you don't actually know who he is or that you're just completely deluded by your sin. The scriptures are clear. Whatever you think you are hiding from other people or whatever you may be hiding from other people, you are not hiding it from God. 1 Samuel 16, God tells Samuel, man only sees the outside appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. And he knows exactly what's going on in your heart and my heart as well. He knows what's real. He knows what's not real. You aren't fooling him. You can fool other people around you into believing that you love them, but you can't fool God. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you pray. This is part of Jesus' issue with the Pharisees. There's a contrast between the words that are coming out of your mouth and the actions that are manifest in your life and what I know to be true of your heart. He's not looking at your words or your actions. Those are all external. He's looking at your heart. There's that parable of the sheep and the goats, right? This, this sort of eschatological view of Christ returning and 
this great separating of people between sheep and goats. And this idea that there will be people who go, Lord, you know me. I know, you know, like, what, what's going on here? Why am I in this group? Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. He's not fooled. As we move into next week, Jonah will begrudgingly make his way to Nineveh, where he'll preach his eight-word message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says. And the people will amazingly repent, and he's furious. He goes and camps outside the city, thinks surely the Lord's going to come around and destroy this place. But he's the only one suffering. And it's, again, just a reminder that not only are we not fooling the Lord, but our sin only leads us into suffering. The places where we think we're going to find meaning and purpose, value, identity, outside of the person and work of Christ, don't bring us life. They don't bring us hope. They don't bring us freedom from fear and anxiety. Jesus is truly the only one whose burden is light. Anything else that we would seek to put our hope in in this world that is not him brings a heavy burden. Money. Stuff. Relationships. Finding my identity in those things. Work. Burden, 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 burden. Jesus is the only one who when our lives center around him, when they truly revolve around him, is a burden placed on us that actually is, is like a non-burden. And yet, even though many of us know that intellectually, the reality is, is that we don't live in submission to that truth. Many of us are actively trying to run away from that truth. Many of us are actively claiming that with our mouths and yet placing our hope in our work placing our hope in our children, placing our hope in our marriage, placing our hope in our stuff, placing our hope in the bank account, whatever the case may be. And that's so challenging and confusing because on the whole, we, we don't look at those things as sinful things. We don't look at those things as evil things. But the problem is, is when those become the true object of our devotion our obedience, our love, rather than Christ himself. As I've said before, and I think we'll say often throughout this, I, I, I read this and I see myself. And so if your tendency is to want to look at Jonah and go, what a moron, Right? <laughs> he's a prophet like, like he's, he's seen the word of the Lord delivered and come to pass like he recognizes what is true he recognizes that God is powerful and yet he does this incredibly dumb thing and, and for us to look at him and go what an idiot is to look past the myriad of times that we have probably done the exact same thing that I have done the exact same thing that I say one thing or I intellectually assent to one thing and yet I do the opposite Paul talks about this same kind of thing, right? There's, there are these things I know, there are these things I ascribe to, these things I believe, and then there are the things I do. 
And part of submission to Christ, part of this true fear of the Lord is, is bringing those things into alignment, right? And, and, and coming, to, coming closer, hopefully, through sanctification to the end of hypocrisy in our lives. Where the things I say and espouse and mentally assent to are actually the things that are made manifest. The things I give myself to, the things I act on, the things I do. And so if you're reading this and it's not showing you things in your heart, read it again. And read it again and read it again. Because while we see people repenting and turning to the Lord here, we, we see more often than not somebody who is doing the exact opposite. And so with those things in mind, let's go to him in prayer this morning. Ask him to continue to reveal these things to our hearts. Not so that we might feel guilty or shame or just feel sorrow for our sin, but, but so that we might actually see those things gone from our lives. That we might pursue Christ's likeness. That we might pursue like truly giving him everything rather than placing our hope or our identity or our satisfaction in these things that ultimately are greater burdens. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your gospel this morning. Thank you for the example of Jonah. Father, we recognize that that so often we say things that we don't do. We do things that we don't say. So often we try to hide things from you or we give you lip service or maybe in some ways we try to flee from your presence. And Father, would you reveal to our hearts this morning just the folly of that, the foolishness of that, the fact that you're not surprised, you're not caught off guard, you know exactly where we are, you know exactly where our hearts are at. And so, Father, through the example of Jonah, would you, would you use that example to turn our hearts towards you in an even greater way? To reveal things in our lives, ways that we are similar. And even as we pray, Father, help us to pray honestly. not just heap up words, but Father, to truly open our hearts to you, to confess our sin, confess our doubts, Father, give us grace to submit to you and to be in wonder of you, to be in awe of the mystery of the God who spoke creation into existence and who sent his only son to die so that we might be saved from our sins. And then, Father, help us to not just hold those things intellectually, help us to actualize those things in our lives, to live this good news, Father, to be bearers, ambassadors emissaries of your kingdom as we go in our everyday lives, Father. May we be people who are, who are manifesting your grace through our actions and through our words and 
through our lives, Father. May we serve others in the way that you have served us so that in some way we might give a taste of what your kingdom is like. We ask these things in the name of Jesus.